Dan Reeves was an interesting guy. He he had really set out to be to be an NFL owner. That was that was kind of his life's ambition. He um, had not really played football himself. I think he'd played a bit in high school, but actually came from a very wealthy family that ran a grocery empire in New York City that was later sold to Safeway, uh, the supermarket chain. So with his proceeds that the family got, Dan Reeves decided he was going to do two things. He was going to buy a seat in the New York Stock Exchange because he was a, he was a, he worked in the uh, stock market, and he was going to buy an NFL franchise. And he had been setting his sights for some time, as I mentioned, to buy a team. He had made overtures to buy uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers and had been turned down. He had made overtures to buy the Philadelphia Eagles and was turned down. So when the Rams came out, quietly came onto the market in early 1941, he, uh, he leaped at the opportunity. As he, he very freely said later, he said, I didn't buy them because they were in Cleveland. I bought them because it was an NFL franchise. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, let's do this. Hi, Tim Hanlon here. Thank you for joining me. It's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that's focused on what used to be in professional sports. Um, We're doing NFL football today, and in particular, some of the earliest days of the NFL. Uh, with our guest, Jim Solecki, who is the author of the Cleveland Rams, the NFL champs that left too soon. And uh, we're going to be delving into a part of the Rams football franchise history that I think most people in Los Angeles or even St. Louis had very little idea about. Uh, it is uh, a wonderful story, rich in little uh, nuggets of uh, of intrigue and uh, and drama, a little bit of comedy mixed in there. And um, I think, frankly, mostly forgotten by uh, fans of the current Rams franchise that um, uh, lest we forget and uh, lose them to to history. Jim has uh, recounted in, in great detail a very interesting and fun to read book uh, that kind of chronicles some of the uh, interesting stories and times of the team that got its start, actually, I think is the sort of seventh or eighth longest running consecutive franchise in, in, in the NFL uh, in Cleveland, actually, as the team in the uh, second iteration of the American Football League in 1936. Uh, It quickly jumped to the more fledgling NFL in 1937 and uh, evolved into a championship team, wouldn't you know it, by 1945. And then within a month of that championship season, the Cleveland Rams bolted for the sunnier and warmer climes of Los Angeles. And an amazing story uh, which obviously continues today, uh, and we'll see that uh, in the next year or two with a brand new stadium uh, from the current owners, the Cronkies, and 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 how the uh, the city of Los Angeles continues to, I guess, re-embrace this team that has uh, uh, been part of the NFL's uh, history for for quite some time. But lest we forget some of the amazing stories and interesting uh, uh, anecdotes about the team in its original days as the Cleveland Rams, and that's uh, going to be with our guest Jim Selecki. Uh, in a couple of seconds. First, uh, though, I want to remind you that uh, we are brought to you today uh, from the by the good graces of Audible, which you know, uh, hopefully by now, is the premier provider of digital audio books. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, from just about every genre you can think of, a business or thrillers or romance and comedy, sci-fi, you name it, Audible probably has it. Audible titles play on just about every device you've got too, iPhone, Kindle, Android, 500 devices or so, I'm told, 
uh, and probably even more than that, uh, which basically guarantees you can be able to listen to whatever you want just about any time and anywhere. And of course, listeners to the Good Seats Still Available podcast can get a free audiobook download, which is a good deal, as well as a free 30-day trial of the Audible service by going to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free audiobook download and 30-day free trial of Audible. Like I said, over 180,000 titles, you name it, they probably have it. A lot of great sports, nonfiction titles in there as well. Uh, and we can't encourage you uh, enough to give it a try. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free audiobook download and your 30-day free trial. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And we thank Audible tremendously for their sponsorship of the Good Seats Still Available podcast. Thank you, Audible. Okay, we are not going to waste another second. We are now moving on to our conversation with author Jim Selecki and our conversation about the early days of the Rams franchise known as the Cleveland Rams here on the con- uh, the po- <laughs> here on the podcast. I guess Jim the uh, the the first best and most obvious question is uh, your background and how you even came into uh, becoming interested in uh, the origins of what is now a uh, arguably very successful and long-lasting NFL franchise now, I guess, this week <laughs> in Los Angeles, but got, it star- but got it started in Cleveland. How did you come across the story in the first place and what interested you enough uh, to devote a significant time to writing a book about the, the origins of the team? Well, you know, first of all, I had spent uh, some time early in my career. I've been a journalist, a journalist my entire career, and I had spent some early time as a sports writer, and uh, particularly at a time when the Brown, the Browns here in Cleveland were actually pretty good. And um, I knew vaguely of the Rams around that time. I really knew, honestly, three things. I knew they had won the 1945 NFL championship. I knew Bob Waterfield was their quarterback, married to Jane Russell. Um, who, of course, was you know on a par with uh, Marilyn Monroe in Hollywood at the time. Sure. And I knew that the team, to, uh, yeah, and I knew that the team moved to L.A. and became the became the Los Angeles Rams. And that was really about it. And um, as I mentioned, I think in the early part of the book, um, my my business travels had taken me to St. Louis back in 1995. And as right around that time, of course, you know Art Modell was making noise. He's going to move the Browns out of Cleveland, and and of course, then the Rams moved from Irvine to uh, over to St. Louis. And so, the, the all the people in St. Louis were, were quite excited about that. Where here at the same time, here's Cleveland losing a team. And I asked a number of people in my travels there. I said, "Well, you know, that's great for you guys. Got the Rams. You know where they're from, right?" And they invariably would say, "Right, Los Angeles." <laughs> and I would say, "No, no, actually, Cleveland. No, no." So that was really a lot of the motivation. Um, and then re- what really kind of catalyzed it was that in 2014, League Park here in Cleveland was reopened. You know, it's the historic home of the Indians, dates to the 1890s one of the few uh, old ballparks really still remaining. And um, I had noticed that in the coverage of the, of this uh, renovation and reopening of League Park, much, you know, a lot of mention about the Indians, a lot of mention even about the, the Cleveland Buckeyes of the Negro Leagues who played there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of mention of the Browns who ended up playing there after the League Park had kind of uh, was closed to, uh, you know, to regular season games. So the Browns started practicing there. But nary a mention of the Rams. 
and, and that was really the catalyst in 2014. And I began to do some research. I thought, well, you know, of all the sports books out there, certainly there's got to be a book on the Rams and the, on the, on the, the origin story of, of what's of today's Rams. And I was astounded to find that there was really nothing. So it was really just a, you know, just the impulse to sort of fill that gap and get that story told uh, that really drove me. Well, you know, and that's interesting because that is uh, a good chunk of why uh, we've been sort of getting this podcast up and running. Um, it's not just about teams and leagues that that no longer exist, but frankly, earlier incarnations of teams that that frankly today's generation of fans don't frankly even know, you know, the origins right. of or or you know aside from maybe a Hall of Fame remembrance game or a, a throwback jersey or a patch. I mean, it, it, it hardly goes – I mean, you're talking about a team, the Rams of today. You know, they spent a, uh, a, a number of years in Cleveland in, in very formative and challenging times. And, and I think uh, uh, in your research, I think you dug up the fact that the, the Rams are, I don't know, one of the longest-lasting continuous franchises in the NFL, but maybe the third or fourth uh, oldest, I guess, No. Yeah, they're up there. I, I think they may be. It may be about seventh or eighth. If you, you know, if you look at the Cardinals, the Bears, you know, so the, the Eagles, the Steelers. But yeah, absolutely. When you think about, you know, here's a team that was really uh, was a was a startup franchise in the '30s, which was already, you know. Uh, 15 some years after the NFL really had got had gotten going, and yet, yeah, they have turned out to be one of the longest lasting uh, franchises. Okay, so before we get to sort of the origins of the team, are uh, in the uh, what was the second incarnation of the AFL? Um, maybe you can regale yeah. our listeners as to how do you go about sort of starting the process to to not only find the information but then synthesize it to come up with a narrative for for the story and the book that really hadn't been done before. Yeah, you know, I really started a lot of my research, of course, just kind of a cursory internet search and just to see what was out there. And, and of course, you know, if it's on the internet, it must be true, you know, <laughs> so, um, so I began to find that there were conflicting accounts. So that started to raise questions, you know. Um, my next bit was to go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame right here in Canton, Ohio, which is about an hour away from where I live. So, you know, so that was an interesting day spent there. There's some great archives uh, there. Then started to bone up on the on just various books that talked about that that era. There's there's some books that are they're part, particularly good, uh, just uh, recounting the early NFL, the early years of the NFL. And then, the, but the key thing was I really dove into the newspaper archives, um, the Plain Dealer here in Cleveland, uh, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, the L.A. Times. And the beauty about, you know, research today is, you know, that's all online. And so it's, it's eminently searchable. So you don't have to, you know, flip through the pages like you, like you might have had to, had to have done 20 years ago, you know. So, but what was interesting is I started to dig up um, as I'm coming across these stories. And it was, it was amazing how quickly the arc of the story started to come together. You know, I really knew how the story began in 1936 uh, in the American Football League. I knew how the story ended in 1946 with the Rams uh, leaving Cleveland. Had only a vague idea of what had happened in between there. And uh, what emerged was kind of a classic coming-of-age kind of arc. You know, here you have early failure, then you have major setbacks. Um, you know, have the war in 1942, 1943, 1944, which, you know, just across the NFL just really decimated their ranks. I mean, owners were were in the, were drafted into the military, uh, players, all sorts of personnel. Then we have uh, kind of a rebound in 1944 and then the sudden success in 1945. I mean, the Rams came out of the blue to win the championship. They were the first 
uh, team outside of the power structure of the NFL up to that time, which of course, you know, was the Bears, the Packers, the Giants, and of course the Detroit Lions. So the Rams were this upstart franchise that almost through divine intervention sort of won this championship in 1945, and then they leave home, you know, and and never to return. So it, it, it just, you know, the arc of this story began to write itself. And then sort of that postscript then when they went to L.A. and then the interesting stories that developed there, uh, you know, that allowed them to get into the L.A. Coliseum and into Los Angeles. It made for just a beautiful sort of way to kind of wrap the story, you know, up and kind of bring it into the kind of the present, you know, the modern era of the NFL. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we go to the beginning of the beginning, I guess, uh, the, the humble sort of origins, I guess, in in the uh, what was the second incarnation of the American Football League, which uh, to the outside observer doesn't seem like the most stable of enterprises uh, to begin a, a, a new franchise. <laughs> that, that would be safe to say that you're absolutely right. Yeah, the, it was a shaky sort of uh, second attempt to compete with a very insular, very kind of monopolistic NFL. And, uh, you know, and the Rams only lasted one year in that league. They really had their sights set on, on the NFL, but kind of gave it a shot. And um, a name, as I mentioned in the book, that's kind of that was really instrumental in that was was this character named Damon Buzz Wetzel. He mm-hmm. he had played for uh, Ohio State. was was an Ohio boy. Um, his father had been a, a baseball executive who actually was uh, was a scout for the Cleveland Indians baseball team. So uh, Buzz Wetzel had played a year in uh, in the NFL. Played for the for the Bears. Actually played for the what were then the the Pittsburgh Pirates, now the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I think very quickly said, you know, I think I want to be an executive rather than a than a player. So <laughs> start up a, uh, started up a team, got uh, money men here in Cleveland, and got the team going. And as you said, uh, you know, very unstable league. Um, I think I mentioned there was one game at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh where they had fewer than 500 fans. So, you know, the Rams just absolutely refused to even come out of the locker room because the, the, the Pittsburgh franchise would not guarantee that they would be paid that day. Uh, there was another game that the Rams had against the Boston Shamrocks where the Boston Shamrocks basically uh, the check bounced uh, that they gave to the Rams in payment for, for playing the game. And then the whole kind of house of cards then came down at the end of the season. The Rams were supposed to play the Shamrocks for a playoff game and uh based on sort of a, an agreement that had, had happened earlier in the season between Homer Marshman, who was the owner of the Rams, and uh, and, the owner, and then uh, Paul Thurlow, Thurlow, who is the owner of the Boston Shamrocks, they're going to play a playoff game um, to see who is the true champion of the, of the AFL. And, uh, well, they, they, finished, out, they, they finished 1-2 in that, that season, right? Exactly, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, the, the Shamrocks had finished 1 and the, and the Rams were 2. And so they were going to play off to see who truly was the uh, was the best team in the NFL. And uh, turns out there's supposed to be snow in Cleveland that day, which the Shamrocks used as sort of cover to uh, to cancel the game. Because in, in fact, what had happened was a I think the Shamrocks realized they had nothing to gain by playing that game. If they lost, they would lose the uh, the, the the title. If they won, they would just ensure that they had the title that, in effect, they had already won. And then also the players were basically rebelling. They were, they were threatening to not come to Cleveland for the game, to not even get on the train and come to the game. So the game was canceled, and, uh, and the Rams indeed were not the, uh, the AFL champions. And that was kind of like the, that was the last straw for what had already been a kind of a debacle of a season. And that's when the Rams' uh, ownership basically said, you know, we, we've got to get into the NFL. 
Well, you meant you mentioned um, you mentioned Buzz Wetzel. Uh, there's another little piece of trivia, though, right? Without Buzz, there wouldn't be perhaps the name of the team, right? Exactly. So, you know, when they had uh, so you had Homer Marshman, who was a lawyer, a businessman here in Cleveland. He he raised a lot of the money, um, and then uh, Buzz Wetzel and then were in the Rams' early offices with a couple of sports writers, one from the Cleveland Press, one from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And yeah, they were just sitting around. They said, "Wow, we need a name for the team." You know what do you what do you what do you guys think we should name the team? And uh, Buzz had mentioned that he was a big uh, fan of the Fordham Rams of the time, of course, in New York City, and and uh, they had a lineman uh, by the name of Vince Lombardi, and uh, they of course were called the Rams. So he threw, he kind of threw that out there. He said, "Well, I'm a fan of the Fordham Rams." The newspaper man jumped on and said, "That's fantastic! It's a four-letter word. You know, a name fits perfectly in a headline." Homer Marshman, you know, that was it. He, he sealed it. He said, that's, that's it with the, with the Cleveland Rams. So that, that was how the name started. It really was just a derivation of the Fordham team and then also in, influenced by uh, the newspapers at the time. And for our longtime listeners, that is the first piece of Jesuit history and trivia that you will have heard here on this show. Uh, borrowing, <laughs> perhaps, and maybe some, some licensing uh, fees, perhaps uh, owed uh, in perpetuity. Um, so a little, bit, a little bit more about Mr. Marshman, because um, it, it seems like... Uh, he, you know, was kind of the, I guess the, the believer, but, uh, you know, not only for the AFL, but then to bring it into the NFL, um, how much of a challenge of a hurdle was that? I mean, why didn't he perhaps try to sort of get this up and running in the NFL to start with, or was he not afforded the opportunity in that first season? I don't think he was afforded the opportunity in that first season. Um, you know, there was some shifting in the franchises that kind of enabled the, uh, that kind of opened up that 10th, that 10th opening in the NFL that, that created that, that opening in 1937. And, and Homer Marshman was actually relatively late on the scene. He had been, uh, uh, Buzz Wetzel had actually got a few other money men um, initially, and that kind of fell through. <laughs> so Marshman kind of, you know, arrived on the scene relatively later, and, and, and literally they, you know, they nailed down the details of the franchise, I mean, just within a few months of the start of the season. And um, But that said, there was a real inkling that they really had to get an NFL franchise in Cleveland. Um, the, the, the longtime NFL president, Joe F. Carr, had long, uh, had long championed Cleveland as a, as a as a home for the NFL, um, at some at one point, and this may astound some people today, but at one point the NFL's headquarters were in Columbus, Ohio, and that was where Joe F. Carr was from. So, of course, being relatively near to Cleveland, he, the city was kind of near and dear to him. So um, there was kind of an urge, anyways, to kind of get a franchise into the NFL. So when that um, so when that tenth opening came up, it seemed kind of a natural. Um, Houston was vying for the for the uh, spot, and, and uh, amazingly enough, so was Los Angeles. And uh, both cities were uh, basically turned down on, uh, on, uh, in, in deference to Cleveland. Main reason being Houston at the time was re- a relatively smaller city, and then L.A. was actually about a third of this, a third bigger than Cleveland, but had no major league. Uh, uh, sports franchise at all. And that was really what the NFL looked for in those days. They really wanted uh, Major League Baseball in particular to be in that market before they came in as a franchise because, of course, the NFL was far inferior to Major League Baseball at the time. And so so what changed, though, that that, that allowed them to come into the NFL at the, for that next season then? 
Um, I, I believe it was the St. Louis franchise. It was, uh, St. Louis it was kind of a, a blend of a St. Louis and I believe Cincinnati franchise, um, and that kind of came apart, and that opened up that uh, that opening for the uh, opened up a, a spot, so to speak, in the in the ten team roster. And the NFL was really trying to kind of stabilize the ten teams. Funnily enough, the um, uh, part owner of that. Uh, sort of sort of moribund franchise in St. Louis was Charles Chili Walsh, who ended up coming to Cleveland in 19 in the mid 1940s, and in fact was the general manager of the Rams when they won their championship in 1945. So, kind of an interesting kind of coincidence there. Well, and even more of a coincidence because uh, Marshman actually went on to become a pretty uh, involved person in the uh, successor or the, the the Cleveland Browns when they came to town and. Uh, sort of had a hand in actually Cleveland ultimately leaving leaving town as well. So in some respects, uh, Mr. Marshman was sort of uh, oddly involved in uh, not one but two uh, NFL franchises uh, departing Cleveland. Absolutely, isn't that isn't that incredible? I, 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 I'm not sure that there's another you know another person who could have the, who could share that superlative you know engineering the departure of two NFL franchises from the same city. Okay, well, let, let, uh, maybe you can give a little bit of uh, a little bit of a, uh, an understanding of sort of the the first couple of years in the NFL. Obviously, quite challenging. You had a number of interesting uh, characters, no doubt. You mentioned uh, uh, Mr. Lewis, but you had a couple of interesting coaches and, and players, Johnny Drake, uh, and uh, and even a sale uh, eventually of the team to to Dan Reeves, which we can get to in a second, which seemed to be pretty catalytic in terms of their going forward. Uh, uh, approach, but it seemed like it was kind of tough times in those first years in the NFL. No, well, absolutely right, and and you know to some extent the 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 cards were stacked against the Rams as they were stacked against all the second tier teams at the time. Um, you know, one problem with the NFL at the time was that, as I mentioned, they had the, the power teams. You know, the Bears, the Packers, the, the, you know, the Giants. They were in the bigger markets generally outside of the Packers, but uh, were generally in the bigger markets. They had the better teams. They won championships. And um, and very often um, the NFL back in those days had kind of an unbalanced schedule. So um, the Giants would play of their ten games, they might play six or seven games at home, whereas the second tier teams like the Rams, like the Cardinals, they might play three or four games at home. So the Rams were already kind of had those cards stacked against them um, in the 1937 draft. Um, that the, they actually had the draft before the Rams had been formally admitted. So. Um, uh, I had mentioned that uh, Joe F. Carr, the NFL president, actually did the drafting for the Rams, for the team that would become the Rams. And interestingly enough, the draft then, the incoming team drafted not first but last. So here we have the Rams are already kind of hobbled right from the start. <laughs> if had they had the first pick in the draft, um, Sammy Baugh, was, uh, his name was in, in that <laughs> year's draft. So I can amuse on that just a bit. Had they had, like today where the worst team or the incoming team had the top pick, they might have ended up with Sammy Baugh as their quarterback. <laughs> so, yeah, they struggled in those early uh, years like almost any uh, like any expansion team. Um, Johnny Drake was came in from Purdue. He was the guy who, um, who, who Joe F. Carr actually drafted and came in and, I mean, it was just a, was a, a running back, a tough running back, but I just got absolutely beat up. It was just a classic case that we see in expansion teams where, you know, the one – high draft pick is kind of sent to the lions and expected to kind of, you know, to carry the team. So yeah, it was some thin gruel in those early years uh, for the Rams, 37, 38, 39. So why do you think, um, so explain maybe why the team got sold. Was it, 
Was it uh, Marshman and, and friends and, and uh, getting just tired of of losing and, and, and sort of throwing in the towel? Or did Dan Reeves uh, out of New York sort of see something that uh, that others didn't see? I mean, is there any any drama as to why the team was uh, was sold uh, in 41? Absolutely. You know, Dan, Dan Reeves was an interesting guy. He, he had um, really set out to be, to be an NFL owner. That was, that was kind of his life's ambition. He um, had not really played football himself. I think he'd played a bit in high school and, uh, but actually came from a very wealthy family that ran a grocery empire in New York city that was later sold to Safeway, uh, the supermarket chain. So with his proceeds that, that, that the family got, Dan Reeves decided he was going to do two things. He was going to uh, buy a seat in the New York Stock Exchange because he, was a, he, was a, he worked in the uh, stock market, and he was going to buy an NFL franchise. And he had been setting his sights for some time, as I mentioned, to buy a team. He had made overtures to buy uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers and had been turned down. He had made overtures to buy the Philadelphia Eagles and was turned down. <laughs> so when the Rams came out, quietly came onto the market in early 1941, uh, he leaped at the opportunity. As he, he very freely said later, he said, I didn't buy them because they were in Cleveland. I bought them because it was an NFL franchise. And that was kind of the beginning of younger money men beginning to come into the NFL. It was be- just beginning to move away from the early years of the George Hallises and the Maras and, you know, the, the true, in some respects, the kind of the, you know, the, the uh, almost kind of streetwise sort of uh, owners, many of whom had been players themselves. Now, simultaneously, the, the team came on the market because there had been a whole coterie of investors in Cleveland who, who, uh, who had put money into the team. And, um, none of them had uh, had played a single down in the NFL. A number of them had played college football. Many of them, including Bob Grease, who later um, helped to start the Browns, had never played a down in football in his life. Um, they did tend to meddle in uh, a lot of on-field decisions. Um, in fact, at one point there was a story where one of them literally sat on the bench during one of the games and was giving uh, play calling advice and player substitution advice to the head coach who was Hugo Bezdick, who was kind of a, you know, a long time, kind of a, a very august uh, college coach. Sure. And so because they had meddled so much in the, in the, in the uh, football decisions, one of the uh, columnists in town came to call that uh, came to call that group of owners, the downtown coaches kind of derisively, almost like, you know, like backseat drivers, the downtown coaches. And, those owners later admitted, they said, you know, we didn't run the team as a business. We really ran it almost as a social event. Um, and so, and no, no surprise, the team then kept coming into financial trouble. And uh, finally, what really catalyzed it all, though, was, was, the, was the kind of the war clouds coming in 1941. This whole group of, of investors were getting increasingly concerned that they were not going to get their money back. If the NFL uh, were to be shut down by World War II, they're sitting here saying, "We're gonna." There goes our money, and um, so they quietly put the uh, put the team on on the market. And Dan Reeves, there was Dan Reeves, kind of poised, uh, just ready to snatch the snatch the team up. Do you think he got a good deal for the team, uh, relatively speaking, um, uh, because of the maybe I don't want to call it a fire sale, but sort of the willingness to sell, or was it a fair market? Do you think, based on your research? As far as I could tell, he got a, he got a sweet deal. Um, the, the Steelers had been on the market just a year before, and the Steelers are every bit as bad as the, uh, as the Rams at that point. In fact, they're probably even a little worse. 
And um, I, I think, you know, as near as I can tell, Reeves paid, and also, uh, incidentally, his um, he, he had a partner uh, in this uh, by by the name of Levy, and the two of them, uh, as far as I can tell, they paid I think seventy thousand or eighty thousand dollars for for the Rams um, in 1941. The Steelers had gone on the market for something like a hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> so uh, other teams were in the low hundreds of thousand dollars. I think the, the Detroit Lions, I think, had been in the market for something like two hundred thousand dollars. So Reeves really got a sweet deal. He was a heck of a businessman by all accounts, and I think he really negotiated. Uh, pretty hard to get the team. The other thing that he did at the time was immediately was going to take the Rams um, and move them to Boston. And that was a whole other sort of subtext of this that I think kind of kind of shifted the negotiations a little bit. Um, and what basically stopped Reeves from doing that was that George Preston Marshall, who was the owner of the Washington Redskins, mm-hmm. um, had moved the Redskins out of Boston. And funnily enough, and this is what he said at the time, which might astound Patriots fans today, you know, he basically said Boston will not support an NFL team. So when, uh, and, and indeed that was the, was the case. The, 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 Boston, uh, uh, the Boston Redskins were not that well supported when they're, when they're in New England and moved to Washington and were immediately embraced. So George Preston Marshall stepped up and said, this, is, this would be insanity to move a franchise into Boston. And, and so basically they told um, the, the owners kind of prevailed on Reeves and said, you know, if you're going to buy the team, you know, you've got to keep it in Cleveland, at least for the short term. And, uh, and, and, and then at the same time, all the Cleveland City fathers really did whatever they could to, to, to convince Reeves to, to keep the team in Cleveland. So he, he, he had intimated that during the or before or, or during the actual uh, the deal negotiation that Boston was very much on the table as a relocation destination. Very much so. Uh, Dan Reeves, by, was all, by all accounts, was very much an East Coast person. He was very much a New Yorker, and uh, he had gone to Georgetown, and, and uh, um, his, 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 had grown up. His family had lived on, on, on Fifth Avenue in New York, right across from the Mets. Um, so it would seem natural for him to be right on the eastern seaboard there. By all accounts, Dan Reeves was not particularly smitten with Cleveland or anything in the Midwest. He, he used to come in. Uh, for game days only, watch the team and get the next train out. Never moved to Cleveland, never lived in Cleveland, uh, continued to live in New York the entire time. So, yeah, right from the start, he had said virtually immediately, yeah, I'm going to move this franchise to to Boston. Uh, Footnote, that is our second Jesuit reference of the uh, conversation, Georgetown University. The alma mater of you, the alma mater of yours, truly. But uh, uh, but uh, that's an interesting factoid that I didn't even know as a as a Georgetown grad myself. Uh, but that's neither here nor there, uh, Jim. So, um, but it seems like that. Okay, so Dan Reeves comes in. the uh, The team somewhat. It seems like it stabilizes a bit, right? At least at least on the field, they're they're a little bit better than some of the uh, uh, the uh, the seasons before. Certainly, the season prior to that being two and nine, I guess, in nineteen forty one. But you mentioned it, and um, and actually, this is not lost on our listeners because uh, we had a similar conversation with our friend uh, Matt Algio, uh, who wrote the book about uh, the Steagles, right? The accommodation right. Uh, endeavor of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Philadelphia Eagles to survive 1943. But in Cleveland's case, right, they decided to sit out the season entirely. Exactly. Yeah, the, the franchise did uh, stabilize, and, and not least of which because Dan Reeves was honestly, you know, he was a better businessman, 
And, um, and and another key element to that, I think, is that first they brought in Dutch Clark, who had been a head coach. Uh, Dutch Clark, of course, is in the inaugural class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a player. He had won an, an NFL title with, uh, with the Detroit Lions. And so he came in and brought sort of a, of a level of professionalism to, to, uh, to the coaching staff. Um, and then in 1942, 1943, uh, Chili Walsh came in, was an experienced football guy. And so he came in um, and really stabilized the franchise as well, started to scout for players, kind of uh, any players who were who off the radar. Um, was a, a very clever uh, and actually probably un, uh, way underestimated by history uh, general manager. As I mentioned in the book, he drafted three future Hall of Famers in two drafts um, while he was with the Rams. So, yeah, they, but they got into 1943, and here's Dan Reeves. He's the youngest owner in the, in the NFL. He was like he 20, is, 29, maybe 28, uh, something like that. By this, yeah, by this point, he might have been, you know, 30, 31. Yeah. Um, and he's getting very concerned. Um, here in Cleveland, the Indians had just come off a, a terrible season in terms of attendance. Bob Feller had been drafted into the Navy. Uh, the Indians' attendance plummeted by like 200,000. I mean, players, uh, as I mentioned, were getting drafted. Rosters are getting decimated. So Dan Reeves, I think, thought he was going to—he was going to put his cards down first, and he, you know, he basically said, you know, we're going to disband operations for the duration of the war. And I think he honestly thought that the other owners would say, you know, you're right, you know, uh, we we probably should do that as well. And actually, that wasn't the case. And I, and and I and, and as I as I heard the the podcast on the Steagles, that's exactly what as he said. So it exactly wasn't the case. There was very much um, an urge, even even by the president, to say, no, we we should continue on with professional sports. It's important that we have that that uh, you know that entertainment to kind of help morale during the war years. So all the other NFL owners. Now, again, you know, bearing in mind these guys are old school guys. You know, the Hallises, the Mars. These guys have the Roonies. These guys have. They lived through the through the Depression. They were like, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna let a, you know, a war stop operations. So basically, Reeves gave instructions to Chili Walsh to to span operations for the war, and uh, I think immediately came to realize that 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 was a mistake. The other teams went forward played their season and uh, within literally a couple months um chili walsh was back in front of the owners saying you know i went back in uh, for 1944 and uh, i don't i don't think the owners were too pleased by that the other owners they had kind of wondered okay are you guys in this or are you not um reeves was a little bit of an outsider among the owners as i mentioned relatively young was seen kind of a kind of a, a flashy sort of new yorker and they were trying to get a get a handle on him like hey you know if you're going to be in this league, be in this league and, and stick with it, you know. Well, 1944, they were back on the scene. And um, interesting little footnote, uh, head coach at the time, Aldo Donelli. Um, interesting little footnote there. Do you want to explain to our audience uh, why he's unique, uh, not only being the head coach that year, but but his other exploits in the sports world? Yeah, here's Aldo Donelli. Um, he had uh, actually been in the uh, had been on a World Cup uh team with the of course the united states soccer team back in the, in the 1930s so here's a guy who had been a, a great soccer player had been recruited by an italian league had been recruited by the english premier league i mean just a kid from pittsburgh but he's a fantastic soccer player and then funnily enough then he comes back uh um, here in the u.s and um he um ends up being simultaneously 
the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers and then also the head coach of the University of Pittsburgh. Um, how so does that he, happen? Uh, how, how, do, how do you get to coach a college team and a pro team at the same time? How's that? <laughs> Good question. In fact, he did it for a very short time. Huh. And um, basically, I think the logistics of it were such that he, uh, that as he said, he, w- he would go to practices in the morning for one team and then get in the car and, and eat lunch and, and, you know, across town and then, and then coach the Steelers in the afternoon. Where this finally all came to a head was when uh, was with the commissioner of the NFL basically just nailed him down and said, you know, you've got to choose one or another. There's, you cannot do both of these. So much to his dismay, he, he, uh, he, he basically, he resigned, um, I believe from the, uh, I, re- I, think, I think from the college and then remained with the Steelers and then ended up leaving the Steelers. So he comes to the Rams in 1944 and actually does a pretty good job. Um, I, I have, I've read other accounts that said that he was fired at the end of the season and, and uh, kind of then making the way for the 1945 championship team. And in fact, when he was not fired in 1944, he, he took the team to a four and six record, which kind of poised the entire franchise for their, their championship year in 45. And in fact, he was given a contract extension. And what actually happened was at the end of the season, um, or at, at the end of the year in 1945, 1944, he was drafted into the, into the Navy. So he was gone. Here the Rams thought that they finally had their uh, – you know, had their had their had their coach here, and now he's pulled into the military. So, the Rams are kind of stuck right in uh, you know about January 1945, and here they are, head coachless, uh, heading into what would become their championship season. All right, so set the tone for that because obviously 1945 is probably the seminal year in uh, I guess the beginnings of the Rams franchise overall, but certainly as the incarnation of the Cleveland Rams. Um, do you think going into the season? Under that inauspicious event, that is essentially losing your head coach. Any inklings that uh, this could be a team of championship caliber? I don't think there really was. I think they had an idea that you know the team was was certainly getting better, um, but I don't think they really had a sense that this is going to be a great team. In fact, um, a, a guy who did the uh, PR for the Rams said nobody saw Bob Waterfield coming, and that was really the key factor. Uh, Bob Waterfield had actually been drafted by the Rams in 1944, but was um, had gone into the military and then played one more season for UCLA. So he was kind of delayed until 1945. Um, but other players uh, joined as well. Don Greenwood then was uh, was brought um, was brought to the Rams in 1945, and actually Buff Donnelly had signed Don Greenwood out of the University of Illinois. <laughs> Don Greenwood would go on and play for the Browns. In fact, he won three consecutive championships, um, first with the Rams at 45 and then with the Browns at 46 and 47, and then retired after three years, um, just complaining about injuries and just a little too much violence in football. But he, Don Greenwood would play a key role. Um, you had Fred Gerke, who would go on into the, to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame for, mm-hmm. for designing the Rams' helmets. He had been uh, stuck in California designing airplanes um, in an airplane factory. He shows up in 1945. Jim Gillette had been, um, his, his son would end up playing in the NFL, drafted in 1970. But Jim Gillette would, would, uh, would, would similarly come onto the team in 1945 after kind of being stuck in the war. So they had this kind of confluence of of you know a core stable group of players, including a lineman uh, Riley Rattlesnake Matheson, and then you have Jim Benton, who is a great uh, receiver, uh, still in the record books to this day. He's uh, fourth or fifth for uh, most reception yards in in one game. 
Um, so you had a core of, of players here. You, you had some draftees, some great draft picks, as I mentioned, that Chili Walsh made. And then you had returning wartime players coming back just in time for that 1945 season as, as the war was winding down in Europe. So you had all these things kind of coming together. And in terms of a coach, Chili Walsh then needed a head coach. He turns to his brother, Adam Walsh. <laughs> the two of them had grown up in California. And uh, Adam Walsh had actually uh, had gone to Notre Dame, had been, had played in the Four Horsemen team, um, so he had pretty good credentials. He he had he had uh, actually coached in Maine at a small college, but came in and just had the right sort of coaching style that the Rams needed at the time. He was kind of intellectual. He was uh, kind of a player sort of sort of coach, and um, and really helped develop all this, 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 this kind of disparate ragtag group of players that kind of gelled into this championship team. Well, it's, so it, it, yeah, it sounds like it. So, so it sounds like Waterfield was not only the, the star quarterback, but truly had some of that star wattage as well. He was kind of a name and, and probably generated some buzz amongst the fans and the headlines in addition to his exploits on the field. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. He is, you know, I mean, a great athlete. Um, as we all now know, um, this is a player who, you know, he could punt, he could place kick. He was a great safety. He was a great quarterback. You know, I mean, he, he was that 45 season. He was, he was known for his naked bootlegs. I mean, he pulled this off multiple times at UCLA where he would just, the whole team would pull in one direction and Bob would go in the other direction and just be standing in the end zone alone, holding up the ball. Um, so he was this incredible athlete, a little bit off the radar, um, playing at UCLA, UCLA at the time was not really a powerhouse team in California. USC was really the powerhouse team. And in fact, Bob wasn't even a, he was not even an all American, which in those days was kind of almost considered the, you know, the point of entry to, for a great player going in, into the NFL, but he had had a breakout game in an all-star uh, game in San Francisco that year. And where and I think among the things he did in that game, he had like a 60-yard punt or something. And I think people just said, you know, like, who is this guy? So, but given the fact, as you say, yeah, he had that star power, you know, Hollywood handsome, had been, uh, had grown up in this, in the San Fernando Valley in LA, um, had actually been, a, you know, had bit parts um, in, in Hollywood films, um, had gone to high school at Van, in Van Nuys with Jane Russell, so uh, Jane Russell was right at the kind of breakout period of her career at that point. It was coming off a, a movie made with Howard Hughes. So she had this sort of notorious reputation to her. So, yeah, Bob rolls into Cleveland, you know, Hollywood handsome is his movie star wife. Uh, the two of them move into an apartment in Cleveland in the fall of 1945. And, yeah, they caused they caused a bit of a sensation here. And, and Bob was was an immediate uh, success here. And and that didn't distract. You would think that would be such a, a gigantic distraction uh, for what ultimately became what a, a team that only lost one regular season game. Uh, actually, the only game that they lost, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, they yeah they lost uh, just just one game to to the Eagles. And um, yeah, you would think it would, it would be a distraction. In fact, it was, it was almost quite the contrary. It seemed as almost as if the team rallied around him. You know, Jim, Jim Benton, the receiver, had said, you know, the end. He had said. Uh, that after the Rams' first game, um, they had kind of an after-game gathering for the team and for the for the media, and uh, and Jane Russell pretty much had all the attention of everybody in the room, including the players, um, understandably. And I think they just kind of rolled with it. I think I th- think they thought that was kind of a great thing. The team just kind of seemed to have this spirit to them, you know, that that just kind of gelled that that year. 
Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you can think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The 10-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two, uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. But before we get to the uh, the championship game, which was is quite seminal in its own respect, um, any in- inclination about how the uh, how the fans took to the team uh, was it an increasingly uh, strong uh, uh, following? Uh, did they always have a good following when they started out? Uh, did it was it a bandwagon effect that that as they kept winning in 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 forty five? What what was the temperature fan wise to? to the team both before and during the 45 season that you could tell from your work? Yeah, the, the, the temperature was uh, probably a little bit cool, but, but warming, I think would be the, uh, you know, the best way uh, to, to put it. Cleveland had been um, the fan base here, the football fan base here had been sort of um, had been disappointed so many times that, which is kind of, you know, rings in the modern day as well here. But they had been disappointed so many times, I think they were a little leery of this team. Um, in fact, J- John Dietrich, who's a, a, a reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and he was kind of the witness to the team, probably had the, had the closest firsthand knowledge of the team during its whole 10 years here. Um, he said as much as well, you know, too. He said, boy, this team looks fantastic. But, but then again, you know, how, how do I know? You know, I mean, I've been disappointed before. So I think the team, the way their schedule was set up that year, they played a few home games at the beginning of the season, and they played a few game, home games at the end of the season, getting back to that imbalanced schedule. The Rams had only four home games out of, out of their, uh, their 10 games that year, 10 or 11 games that year. And um, so they had a lot of road games in between there. And um, I think between those early season games and the, end, and the latter uh, part of the season, interest in the team obviously began to accelerate considerably. And it really came to a head finally um, when they played in league park um, against the uh, green Bay Packers, the green Bay Packers at the time had just dominated what was then the Western division and just mm-hmm. repeatedly went to, you know, NFL championship games. So at the time the Packers were the absolute arch rivals of, of the Rams. And uh, now league park only held about 23,000 fans and many people had urged the Rams 
particularly Chili Walsh, there's going to be a surge in this game, um, in attendance for this game. This game should be moved to Cleveland Stadium, which is just about you know four or five miles away. And the Rams had had played a couple seasons in Cleveland Stadium, but they had kind of settled in League Park. And um, Chili Walsh basically was kind of deaf to their pleas and just uh, just uh, went forward with holding the game um, at League Park, and, and in fact built some temporary bleachers with kind of wartime kind of cheap materials. And, and sure enough, here, here's a surge of, of attendance at the game. There's about 28,000 people packing into a 23,000 seat yeah. ballpark. And uh, sometime in the first quarter, the stands collapsed. <laughs> and uh, one person broke, I think, broke their leg. Um, it really, the, the sense was, John Dietrich's sense was, this really kind of put a bad taste in a lot of fans, you know, mouse here. Here's finally a good team. People want to come see this team. We have this you know, this 78,000, 80,000 seat stadium just down the lakefront here. Why on earth, you know, did you not move that game to, you know, to Cleveland stadium? And then the last game of the season was the Rams had clinched their, uh, had clinched the division um, in Detroit in kind of a seminal game on Thanksgiving day. And that's how they got into the NFL championship game. And then they played one last game at league park um, against the Boston Yanks. And it was, by that point, it was just, you know, it was a meaningless game. The Rams had already clinched. So attendance was kind of, you know, mediocre. It was late in the season. The Rams had already clinched. And so I think when people look at kind of the attendance of the Rams that season, and certainly Dan Reeves pointed to it, you know, Mm -hmm. Dan Reeves among his rationales for moving the team was, well, geez, the attendance wasn't very good. Um, You know, I lost $40,000 that season. But in a way, I think it was a little bit explainable in the fact, as I mentioned, that their games, a couple games early in the season, people weren't sure who this team was. Latter part of the season, we had that debacle at League Park, and then finally the the closeout game at League League Park, and incidentally the last NFL game that would ever be played at League Park. So I'd have to say there's kind of an asterisk on that. There was a definite surge of interest in the team, and um, and 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 it was leading up then finally to that championship game. Well, that, it's interesting because uh, you look at some of the you look at the stats of that game. Uh, the attendance I think was roughly thirty two thousand for that game in a stadium that held what seventy eighty thousand seats. Yeah, right. right. So and one thing that came out in uh, in my uh, in my research um, talking to my father. You know, my father is. Um, was 10 years old at the time when that game was played. I had never, never noticed until I began research and really started writing the book. He said, you know, I was at that game. <laughs> I, w- I was like, I, I, I had no idea. In fact, my grandfather as well um, had no idea. My, my grandfather had, um, had owned a restaurant and there was a vendor who had just happened to have two tickets that just gave them to my grandfather. So he took my father to the game as everybody probably knows, or most people know, is it was is it extremely cold that day. What what had happened in Cleveland, and and you being in Chicago, Tim, you would, you, you know you know this 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 sensation. Uh, the week before had been unseasonably warm weather, and immediately they sell thirty thousand tickets to this to this championship game, and and there's intimations. They said, man, this is going to set a new record. This may break, you know, record set at the Polo Grounds for an NFL championship game. Well, then by Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a cold front moves in, a blizzard moves in, snow starts falling, temperatures start plummeting, so that by uh, game day, they had actually sold, I think, about 35,000 tickets. About 32,000 people showed up. And yeah, you're absolutely right, as you mentioned, in in an 80,000-seat stadium, 
it was pretty empty. In fact, my father told me that what fans pretty much did was they just pretty much got out of their seats and just everybody just kind of pushed down to, towards the field and just kind of huddled together, you know, to close to the field. And, you know, of course, ushers or anybody didn't, you know, d- d- allowed them to do that. And um, so absolutely, um, it seems like it wasn't much of, of an attendance, um, but it really was a, pretty much on a par for the era. In fact, subsequent NFL championship games in 46, 47, 48, 49, and in fact, 50, uh, that great uh, Browns-Rams championship in 1950 at Cleveland Stadium actually had fewer people than that, um, yeah. had 29,000 people for that game. So um, so that's, you know, that, that was another kind of, I think, of, of a, maybe a misapprehension about the attendance at, uh, for, for the Rams. I think there's always kind of these extenuating circumstances. You know, had the weather been good, Many there are a number of reporters who had surmised. One reporter for in Washington, a reporter in Cleveland, said, "Boy, had the weather been just even decent instead of literally zero degrees, you know, temperature at game time, you know, this attendance would have been a record breaker." Well, there are a couple of interesting footnotes to that game, <clears throat> which uh, you you call out in the book, and and uh, you know, uh, God forbid they lost to history, but uh, you mentioned uh, Chili Walsh and and his uh, activity with the team, but. Uh, he actually went out of his way to try to make the the field a little bit more playable, given those freezing conditions, didn't he? Yeah. Yes, he certainly did. You know, and this is a technique that I later came to to discover was con- continued to be done into the fifties and even early nineteen sixties. I think in Green Bay, but yeah, which is they had this idea that they were going to buy straw and insulate the entire field. They pretty much cornered the market on all the straw in northern Ohio and paid. <laughs> Uh, you know, an astounding amount of money for this. In fact, as I say, it, it was uh, about on a par with Bob Waterfield's salary for that year. And Bob Waterfield was, you know, I think was the highest paid player in the NFL that year. I mean, it was not an insignificant amount of money that they put on the field and just strewed the straw across the whole field and then put a tarp on top of it. And then snow then came down all week long. And just and so now you got this sandwich of stuff on this field. And then as they got into the weekend, they were basically like, you know, how are we going to get this off the field? Um, who's going to do this? So kind of a battle broke out between, you know, the city and the Rams, you know, who, who's going to, where are we going to get labor to do this? You know, the Rams didn't really have the money to, to pay for that. And the city was kind of pushing back on it a little bit. The city of course owned the stadium. And what they finally did was they just got anybody they could. They got high school kids. They got veterans. They were giving free tickets to, to, to veterans. If they came down on that Sunday morning and helped remove all this material off the field, they could get a, a free uh, free ticket to the game, and, and that's in fact what they what they did. In fact, if you go on YouTube, you can find video of of, of that game of before the game, literally of, of wagons and guys with pitchforks, you know, um, to get just uh, removing straw from the field, which they did within a couple hours, and then they then started to shovel all the snow over to the side, and then they peeled back the uh, the tarp. And, and lo and behold, there was the field. Unfortunately, it didn't do a particularly good, good job of insulating the field. What happened then, it was so cold, is that the field just froze like a bullet. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, Don Greenwood said later, he, you know, he, he, he injured his shoulder in that game and just said that, that field, it, he said it was like hitting you know, concrete, like hitting pavement. So, well, according, yeah, to, meant, yeah, according to the records, yeah. it, the, the game time temperature, uh, the, uh, the start was minus eight Fahrenheit. And and I, I I don't know if you have any research to show maybe what the what any if any wind or any wind chill was on top of that, but 
That's, uh, you know, up until that time, that was the, obviously the coldest championship game. And, and I'm sure it's been rivaled by the Ice Bowl and whatever. But that's it's probably in the top five in terms of all-time coldest championships in NFL history, for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. And and, and it was I think it's only because of the lack of reliable sort of meteorological data at the time that I, that I think, you know, the, the league doesn't truly acknowledge it as one of the coldest games of all time. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was cold. And as I mentioned, my, my father was there and being 10, he, that's among the things he remembers. You know, that's the, what first came to his mind was, oh my God, was it cold? It was so cold that some of the people had straw and brought it up into the stands and were setting it on fire to, to, to warm themselves. So my grandfather actually was concerned about that. And it was trying to get my father to stay away from, from the burning straw on the field. <laughs> and as I think I also mentioned in the book, and this would probably would come to no surprise anybody who has ever uh, been familiar with Cleveland Browns fans, but there was a, a fair bit of alcohol that had been consumed through the course of the game as well. So Can't imagine. it made for an interesting scene. Can, cannot imagine how that, how that would have worked. All right. Before, before we get, so let, let, let's, remind our, our listeners that the game was pretty darn close and it was the, the yes. Rams against the Washington Redskins. And uh, do you want to get into uh, the uh, the safety, the two points in the first quarter that became uh, a gigantic issue and longer lasting in the league beyond just the uh, the decisioning of, of that championship game? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, at one point, the Redskins were backed up in their, I think, their own two-yard line, and it, it was as was very common in those days. They would, um, they, they, their first uh, plan was to elect a punt just for good field position. So Sammy Ball also was the uh, was the punter. So the first play lined up, uh, got the snap, was going to punt, and then tried to throw to his right. And you know, kind of a fake, and and the ball just kind of then floated to the to the, to the ground. It was also, as you mentioned, it was very windy in the game. So it was second down. So um, I think they got a they got a uh, an intentional grounding penalty. So now they're backed up even further. Now the the Rams are backed up, or I'm sorry, the the Redskins are backed up with their backs to the part of Cleveland Stadium that would later uh, gain infamy as the, as the dog pound. So mm-hmm. they're you know they're right backed up against the stands there. And on the next play, then, um, Baugh takes the snap, immediately fires to his left, and um, as far as we can tell, a, a, a breeze or a wind or something carried the ball, his pass, uh, right into the upright of the goalpost. And the ball bounced off the goalpost and bounced back into the end zone. And, and literally, the game stopped. Um, as my father told me, he said, we, we had no idea in the stands what had happened. Um, people on the field didn't know what had happened. People in the press box didn't know what had happened. The officials gathered and and uh, and, and conferred, and basically said, "Well, this is a part of a. Uh, uh, this is in the rule book that if a ball hits the goalpost and bounces back into the end zone, it's it's a uh, it's it's a uh, it's an immediate safety. Of course, today it would be a a dead ball, and." Um, of course, then that rule change came right after this game because uh, it's the so-called Marshall Ball rule that that says that any ball hitting the goalpost then becomes just a dead ball. But in this case, it was ruled a safety. So immediately the uh, the uh, Rams are up two to nothing. Now, an interesting side note to that is that both uh, Sammy Ball and also uh, one of the receivers on the Redskins absolutely have claimed that uh, that the, that the receiver was would have been wide open. He was running down that left sideline, and that would have been uh, an easy touchdown. 
Um, hard to say, as I mentioned in the book, I kind of studied the film pretty intense, intensely, and you could kind of see the receiver uh, kind of going down that, that left sideline, but Bob Waterfield was a fantastic safety, and he was just a couple, uh, a couple feet behind this receiver. And in fact, he made a few other great plays. He had a, he had a, a touchdown saving tackle uh, late in the game. So uh, it's kind of hard to say, you know, whether indeed that was the case. But as, as it were, um, yeah, the Rams were up two to nothing, and uh, and that would be end up being the decisive margin in the game. Was there? A, a, do you know if there was a formal protest lodged uh, uh, against uh, that uh, the game by by uh, the uh, Redskins owner Marshall? I don't think it was a formal protest, but it certainly was a move to um, change the rule. To change the rules, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and and I and I think we have we have a pretty good sense that it stuck in his craw pretty well um, after that game. The final, of course, the final score of the game was uh, the Rams won fifteen to fourteen. So that ended up being the uh, the you know as I mentioned, decisive uh, play of the game. All right. So so then. Cleveland are champions, and how does the uh, how does the city react? And uh, does that seem to bode uh, good feelings and uh, a a burgeoning future for this team after that game? Absolutely, people were very optimistic um, as they headed into into New Year's Eve. There was much talk of you know, wow, next year we may have two football champions in this town because of course the Browns were starting up at that time in the All-America Football Conference so they were uh, and the Browns were looking to be pretty good they had hoped to start in the 1945 season uh, the All-America Football Conference but the war had delayed that so yeah there was very much a feeling that here we're going to have two teams two potentially championship caliber teams in Cleveland in 1946 and uh, and another interesting factor that happened, and right after the start of the year, um, all three of the newspapers in Cleveland then went on strike, and um, pretty much from early J- January until er, until early February, and that was when um, Dan Reeves, in fact, announced that he went to the NFL uh, annual meeting in New York and announced that he was moving the team, and that news never was ever published in Cleveland at the time that it happened. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, I just wonder how much of that had just had a dampening effect. I mean, the newspaper, you know, newspapers of the era were pretty much that was the main medium at the time. Of course, there was radio, but there was really never a chance to really take apart what had happened to to, um, you know, uh, there was never an opportunity for a public rallying point. You know, um, and and, and there was a lot of discussion of professional football in in newspapers of that era. Um, um, You know, a lot of kind of other opinions notwithstanding. There was a lot of ink that was spilled on the Rams when they were here. And it just kind of shut down discussion when Dan Reeves moved the team. Do you you think that Reeves had it in his head even before that championship season that he was going to move the team at least somewhere else other than Cleveland and in particular Los Angeles or – do you think he kind of grew into that belief or idea? I th- I think it'd be a safe bet that by that you know by that final year he was pretty convinced he was going to move to L.A. Um, there was a um, one thing I, I report in the book is that about a year before they moved, um, the Rams attempted to hire a coach from the Chicago Bears, and they basically told him they said, "Well, we noticed that you that you." Um, that you, well, you may be able to get a factory job in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I, I'm sure the coach is kind of like, well, I'm not sure why you're telling me this. Uh, Chili Walsh had been from uh, L.A. 
uh, of course, Adam Walsh had been from L.A., Bob Waterfield had been from L.A., and Chili Walsh came back around that same time with a, uh, uh, from a very mysterious trip to L.A., uh, had been gone for a couple of weeks. And, and at first, I kind of made, had told the media story that, well, my mother was very ill. And that, that of course, that ended up uh, being a ruse. Um, and, and so rumors had begun to, to build even then. We're talking about, you know, here we're talking about early uh, part of uh, 1945. And um, and in fact, in fact, the media even went to Chili Walsh and asked him point blank, "Are there is it is it possible that this team might move?" And and he absolutely, you know, he he just uh, 100% denied it and said, "You know, we've got a lease with Lee, at Lee Park for at least five years. You know, this team isn't going anywhere." But I I think probably for sure that last year, you know, you, you hear a lot of accounts that. Dan Rees was going to the NFL every year and asking to move. I was never really able to substantiate that, you know, per se, but um, for sure, I think in, in that last year, he had his sights on LA and was probably looking for, uh, uh, you know, as good of cover as he could. And interestingly enough, what he said was, he said, in effect, once they won the championship, he said, he said, now we're good enough in effect that we should now be able to then now, um, get agreement from the other NFL owners. He, he felt as if when the team was not good, they, they didn't have leverage with the rest of the NFL. I find it interesting that you have uh, an owner who's claiming that uh, you know financial losses and poor attendance and you just won the championship, and yet you have another team in another league coming into the city to basically be the second team competing in football. Uh, it seems almost kind of Silly, if that's the case, that that a second team would be any better than the one team that had just won a championship in the city. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly the point. You know, but here's the thing, though, and, you know, um, as you know, the Browns came in, they had Paul Brown, who had been a legendary coach in Ohio, at Ohio State. Um, the, the Browns had, had had a number of players who were either from Ohio or had played at Ohio colleges or, you know, who came from the Midwest. You know, Mickey McBride and Paul Brown were just, in some respects, they were just, they were better local operators. You know, they had, they had more local ties. Mm -hmm. You know, Mickey McBride had been a businessman and the, you know, the founding owner of the Browns had been a businessman in Cleveland for decades. You know, Uh, as I mentioned, Dan Reeves was, was not from Cleveland, never really made any overtures to, to the, to the Cleveland community. So I think there was, while the Rams were a good team, and I think people were really beginning to embrace pro football. As we know, Cleveland today is still very much into pro football. Um, I, I think it was just kind of a better operation. And allegiances almost immediately kind of began to split a little bit. You know, there's just there, it, there's almost an, a more immediate visceral uh, embracing of the Browns than there had been of the Rams, in spite of their championship. Well, off to Los Angeles they went, and I guess uh, – uh, Jane Russell and Bob Waterfield were particularly excited because they could be in their backyard closer to the uh, the Hollywood paparazzi and uh, and and to her still fledgling uh, film career. Um, yeah. But the but the move to uh, Los Angeles wasn't necessarily uh, smooth, and and perhaps maybe this is a, a good coda to sort of the uh, the Cleveland uh, Rams story. Um, you know, but but a very important one as they went into Los Angeles was this, uh, their lease with the Coliseum and, and the binding, uh, clauses that, uh, enabled them to get into the Coliseum to play. Do you want to kind of touch upon that? 
Absolutely, yeah. The, the L.A. Coliseum was, I mean, that was that that was the golden ring for Dan Reeves. That that was where he wanted to put, to, to place his team. He had he had seen a game there ten years earlier, and he thought, you know, he said, "Wow, this is where, uh, you know, this is where I want my team to be." He had made other arrangements potentially that that in the in the chance that he could not get in the L.A. Coliseum, so he had looked at a, a few other smaller fields around Los Angeles. Um, but he wanted that Coliseum. And I think they thought that they were going to kind of get in there pretty quick, he and he and Chili Walsh. What they hadn't reckoned with was that, A, the L.A. Coliseum had not had professional football there for 20 years, uh, mainly because USC had almost kind of uh, um, came to like almost monopolize the stadium. They, they wanted to be the only game in town, so they kind of prevailed upon the Coliseum Commission, it was, as it was called, in L.A. to kind of thwart NFL games um, in, in, in the Coliseum. And then the other thing at this time, of course, now we're immediately after the war here. The, 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 there's the burgeoning civil rights movement. The um, Los Angeles have long been kind of a racially integrated uh, community. And um, and they sensed what was coming in terms of professional sports, that Eastern sports franchises were kind of eyeing the West. And there was there was a small group of, of black sports writers in, in L.A. who said who decided we're going to use this as an opportunity to integrate uh, the NFL. And what they did was they went to the to the uh, Coliseum Commission meeting and the argument that they basically made was uh, they said, well, look, um, if the L.A. Coliseum is going to be for an all white team, where's the stadium for the all black team? So they were basically what they were trying to do is put just to put pressure on the city, almost to have to create a second venue. And legally, this probably could have been overcome, but I think the L.A. politicians, the Coliseum Commission, they didn't want any um, any controversy. They wanted to open up the market as much to eastern uh, to eastern sports franchises, which indeed was the case. Turned out to be the case. So they basically. Um, the commission turned to Chili Walsh and said, "Would you agree to sign a, a, a black player?" And uh, and and Chili Walsh said, "Absolutely." So the, the the player that they signed was Kenny Washington, who had been a star in UCLA. In fact, it had been there, um, had played at UCLA with Jackie Robinson. So Kenny Washington was then signed to the team, and then they decided, this being of course 1946, that he needed a a roommate. So they also signed Woody Strode, who went on to be a, uh, a Hollywood actor. And that was the reintegration of the NFL. Some people say it was the integration of the NFL. Actually, it, the NFL had been integrated up until the early 30s. Uh, but this was the, the reintegration of the NFL. And it all came about because the Rams had moved from Cleveland, wanted the LA Coliseum, and, 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 were, at, and were forced to integrate the team. And so the Rams, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, and then, of course, uh, uh, Marion Motley and Bill Willis of the Cleveland Browns, the four of them came to be in 1946, what's now called sort of the Forgotten Four, uh, the four guys who reintegrated the NFL. And based on that reintegration, um, we had then uh, over in Major League Baseball, they, they were taking a look at the NFL and at the uh, All-America Football Conference and saying, well, if, if they can, and this is Branch Rickey, who uh, was, of course, with the Dodgers at the time and also had a franchise in the All-America Football Conference. He said, well, if, if, if a black player can be reintegrate into football, a violent sport, and nothing happened here, then certainly we can do the same in baseball. And that was when uh, Jackie Robinson was then signed. So you have this sort of uh, 
this this reverberation across history here. The Rams leaving Cleveland to go into L.A. reintegrates the NFL, which then then integrates Major League Baseball, and oh by the way, also opens the door to the West Coast. The the Rams are the first major professional sports franchise west of the Mississippi, so now it opens the door for the Giants to move to San Francisco, opens the door for the Dodgers to move to move to L.A. And all these sort of post-war changes that were that are still upon us today started in no small way because the Rams decided that they wanted to leave Cleveland. Do you think Dan Reeves gets too much or too little credit for opening up that westward expansion of professional sports in that era? That era? You know, that I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. He, he certainly gets a lot of credit. There's no doubt about it. In fact, he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, um, you know, for his for his uh, for that sort of groundbreaking um, decision to do that. Um, I think you could, you could sort of question to some extent kind of how he went by, uh, went about doing that. Um, by all accounts, Kenny Washington was not treated all that well as a player um, on the Rams. I don't know if that's attributable to Dan Reeves necessarily, but that was certainly seen as kind of a crass move to do that, you know, to, to, to achieve what he wanted to achieve. Um, he, he, he made the move. Um, strictly for money. Um, I mentioned that in the book. I had talked with Joe Horrigan at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I asked him to say, you know, what what are the differences or the similarities between Dan Reeves and Art Modell? And he said, well, in the case of Art Modell, you could make a case when Art Modell moved the Browns to Baltimore to become the Ravens that he needed the money. So Dan Reeves was enriching himself. So um, I think it would have been inevitable, obviously, that, that this all would have happened. It certainly took a bit of, of bravery to stand up to the other NFL owners. They were adamantly against him. And, and I interviewed for the book, I interviewed Dan Reeves Jr. And, and he he, he uh, confirmed as much. He said, yeah, my father was always kind of an, uh, an outsider among the kind of the, the old league. So that it probably took a lot for him to do that, to, to, to stand up and do So it, probably maybe a little bit more credit than, than he merits. You know, although a lot of what he he has gotten is probably well deserved. Well, it's an interesting coda to uh, a, a, a a time in the team's history that um, you know. Uh, thank goodness you've recounted it so uh, so well here in this conversation, as well as in your book, um, because I think you know it's ironic, especially given that the Rams uh, came back to the very same Coliseum last year, and and will be moving into a. Uh, a brand spanking new stadium, uh, I think the season after next. Um, and it's a team right. rich in history with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, amazing legacies that rule uh, the, uh, the first painted helmets, uh, you know, the westward expansion. And I think frankly, a lot of people kind of lose sight of all that sort of pioneering stuff that happened when the team was in Cleveland. Right. I agree. And as I mentioned in the book, it was what, 70 years to the day. Um, um, that Stan Kroenke announced he was moving the team from from uh, St. Louis to Los Angeles is 70 years a day after um, Dan Reeves announced he was moving the team from Cleveland to Los Angeles. And you're absolutely right. All that history that's lost, um, I, that was kind of, and that was kind of a sub motivation, I think, to this book. You know, the NFL is coming up on its 100th anniversary in 2020. And I know the Pro Football Hall of, Hall of Fame is gearing up for that. And what, one of my sub motivations was to kind of bring back that understanding or an appreciation for the for early football. And I think, I think it's happening, particularly among younger people. I, I had asked Joe Horgan, I said, you know, I said, why do you think it is that 
professional football doesn't really honor its past, you know. And in fact, you can't even often you can't even get a, a firm answer on you know what is the beginning of the modern era of pro football. Some people say it was the start of the Super Bowl. Some people say it was you know the greatest game in 1958. You know, some people say it was the end of World War II. So why is this that? pro football fans don't honor their history as much as baseball. And what Joe said, I thought was interesting. He said, you know, he said, I really think the NFL thinks that it started, its history started when it became the most popular sport in America. And, and, and that's kind of the dividing line. And, and it's really unfortunate because that would trace to probably the fifties and the sixties. It's really unfortunate for all those pioneering people in the twenties, thirties and forties who really built, you know, the foundations of the game that in many respects are still with us now. Well, I hope that uh, that history is not lost in the next generation of the Los Angeles, again, Rams, uh, and yes. that uh, a deep reach back into uh, into the uh, into the bowels of history, especially when it was a, a team in Cleveland. Um, I hope that uh, comes back on a on a regular and sustained basis. And um, it's clearly one of the reasons why we do this podcast, because uh, we, we don't want to see sort of these things sort of lost to history. Now, some of the some of the stories in the in the leagues, the teams that we kind of talk about are just kind of comical and and interesting sort of side notes or footnotes that truly deserve to be forgotten. But we, we choose not to forget them. Uh, but this one's a little bit more essential, right, especially as the NFL continues to be truly the most uh, successful professional uh, league, I think, on the planet in terms of uh, revenues, in terms of franchises and and and, and legacy and, and popularity. And um you know, to see that sort of era of the Rams history forgotten uh, would be a crime in my mind. So, yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. In fact, I'm looking forward. I, I'm, I've become kind of a, uh, a fan of the Rams as well. I'm heading out this fall to the LA Coliseum to, to see them uh, play. So, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the you know, revitalization of their franchise as well as the Browns <laughs> simultaneously. These are two great franchises that very historic franchise. It would do everyone, I think, the whole league well if we can see kind of a, a revitalization of both of them. Well, if you're a fan of the Rams of today, or even if you're not a fan of the Rams today, uh, the book by Jim Selecki that you do want to read is called The Cleveland Rams, The NFL Champs That Left Too Soon. It is published by McFarland. Uh, you can find a link to it uh, on our website, goodseatstillavailable.com, and you'll see the link from uh, when we post the episode. Uh, but you can also go to Jim's uh, website, which is very cool and very well done and, and a lot of interesting background on the team. Uh, and the book, uh, that's Clee Rams, that's C-L-E-R-A-M, as in Mary S, cleerams.com, uh, and uh, immerse yourself and then buy the book there as well. Jim Selecki, I want to thank you tremendously for uh, spending all this time with us and talking about uh, the book, uh, the team, and um, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for being part of our little fledgling podcast. Well, thank you, Tim. It's been great. Thank you very much, and uh, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Okay, there you have it. A great conversation. Thank you to Jim Selecki for that uh, uh, very intriguing conversation. And again, they, uh, the book is called uh, The Cleveland Rams, The NFL Champs That Left Too Soon. Uh, it is published by McFarland. Uh, you can get uh, a copy of that wherever good books are sold. You can find a link uh, to the book uh, on our website, which, of course, as you know, is goodseatsstillavailable.com. If you go to the episodes section, you will find a link to the book where you can buy it. You can also go to uh, Jim's website uh, that gives a little bit more background about the team as well as uh, what he's doing to promote the book at cleerams.com. That's C-L-E-R-A-M-S, Rams, cleerams.com. 
Um, and uh, it's a fun read, and uh, I uh, highly encourage it, especially if you're a, an L.A. Rams fan of today. I think it's really uh, important and uh, just fun to know about some of the uh, some of the, the legacy history uh, of the team before it uh, came back uh, to what is now the modern day uh, Los Angeles Rams. Um, so a couple of quick notes. Uh, again, uh, if you want to find out what's going on with the website in general, again, the good place to go to for that is our website. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can sign up for our email news list there. You can send us email with your suggestions or your commentary. Uh, you can please indeed follow us on uh, social media. You'll find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll see us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, there is a uh, Facebook page for us around Good Seats Still Available. You can find us there as well. Um, just about anywhere you look, you'll probably bump into us. And uh, we can't thank you enough for giving us a listen. We uh, very much uh, appreciate your your comments and suggestions. Uh, we got a lot more planned. Uh, But keep it coming, and uh, hopefully we will keep it coming as well. Until next episode, take care, everybody.